Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Haroon Mir from Thinkst. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep, Thinkst it is. Thinkst, uh, Thinkst Applied Research, a security company out of South Africa. Um, Haroon is a veteran of the cybersecurity industry, spoke at Black Hat for several years, has worked as a pen tester and security assessment guy for many years uh, before launching his own company. Uh, Haroon, I want to get a sense of what Thinkst is, what do you do and what you're most widely known for. Um, sure. Um, so right now, pretty much all we do is Canary. So um, we founded, oh, I started Thinkst in 2010 after a long run doing pen testing and security research type stuff. And the hope with Thinkst was to use some of the some of the type of creative hacks or energy that we dedicate to pen tests to actually seeing if we can build solutions in the same vein. Um, and so that's what the plan was with Thinkst. And the way we did it initially was I said, look, we'll try to find the product. So so initially we, we took an aim at essentially uh, – just going to stop things beeping in the background. Um, so, so the whole plan was that uh, we knew we wanted to build a product. We didn't know which product it was that needed building. And so for a very short while, uh, we took on product work for companies in the security space to see if there was a solution worth building and a solution that would generalize. And so we tried a few things uh, looking to see if there were uh, worthwhile products in them until we kind of stumbled on reinventing the honeypot, which is what we do now with uh, with Canary. Okay, so explain Canary. Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. Canary is, is, is really interesting. It's, it's kind of in this cyber deception realm where you kind of assume that intruders are going to get in and you set, uh, it's kind of like a honeypot, I guess. You kind of set right. traps and set decoy documents and decoy servers or whatever it is um, right. with the assumption that the intruder will get in and this will trigger some sort of alerts for real uh, access right. of certain things that you've planted there. Give me give me the, the big picture of what it does picture, sure. and what, what, are, what are your customers using it for? Sure. So, so I'll tell you, the, the way we built it or, or the reason we started building it was quite by accident. And, and anyone who's looked at the honeypot space uh, has a few gut reactions to it, right? Because we knew they were big in the early 2000s, like Lance Spitzner and the guys from the HoneyNet project did really good work with the Know Your Enemy series. And, and for almost uh, 20 years, the honeypots have kind of gotten a bad name as a research distraction. And and uh, essentially, so, so what happened with us is we ended up uh, doing some work for a customer with a really massive network, massive global network. And like most global customers, these guys are owned in multiple places and in various uh, degrees of ownage at any given time. And what we wanted to do was to focus them on the areas that mattered. And uh, we were casually involved with this company. So the first time I went out there, I told them, listen, here's a fun project. Like, take your interns. Here's a bunch of machines that you guys were doing nothing with. Let the interns install BSD on them. Let them install uh, Honeypot software. Go do it. Like, they'll learn something, and you'll get useful signal. And I went back to them six months later, and it still wasn't done. And, and they had every intention to do it. And two months later, they still hadn't done it. And then you figure out that part of the challenge with uh, dropping honeypots is that people already have all this grief just managing their real boxes. And now you want them to manage N hundred fake boxes. And, and so it's the management and overhead of those things that cause additional problems to people who are already drowning. And that's so, what you're looking to completely simplify in uh, one or two, three clicks plant. Exactly. Uh, just never have to manage. Exactly right. So, so with our canaries, our whole pitch is two and a half minutes later, even for a non-technical user, you have a, a high-fidelity mixed-interaction honeypot. So, and, and we do various things, right? So like if it looks like a Windows box, it'll off up Windows shares and it can join the AD domain and 
if it looks like a Cisco router, when you nmap it, it'll come back with Cisco's TCP IP stack. So, so there's a lot of engineering behind the scenes to make sure that, that it's a good-looking copy. And, and again, what's really nice about it is when you're deploying Canaries on your internal network, the alert that they give you has a really high signal because somebody found the server in AD, somebody then mapped to it, somebody then went to the directory called 2018 financials, and somebody then copied off the file called execsalaries.pdf. Whether it's someone internal or someone who's broken externally, you've got someone looking around that you need to go then investigate. And uh, but that's pretty much where it started. And uh, yeah, so, so product-wise, that's Canary. We've got an add-on called Canary Tokens, which is uh, a new take on old Honey Tokens. And, and again, like many of these things, once you start giving it uh, dedicated time by uh, people who've been in the space, you can start to do really interesting things. So, so for Canary Tokens, there's dead simple, like create a URL, and if someone visits that, you get a notification. Or create a domain, and if anyone looks up this domain, you get a notification. But with those two primitives, you can start to do much more interesting stuff. So, so it because it was in the news recently, like what you can do is every time a Windows user browses a Windows share, his machine looks for windows.ini to see if he should set a custom background. So you can create a custom windows.ini so that when someone visits a folder, it reaches out and tells you that someone's reached that folder. So, so you can create a whole bunch of, of really cute tokens. And, and again, the value that, that we add to this is anyone with a reasonably smart tech team can deploy a URL and then watch if that URL is ever ticked over. But with once you've got Canary tokens, we build all that infrastructure for you. We maintain that infrastructure, the alerting around it. So all you do is literally visit our site, click to generate the token, and drop it where you want to. And, and some of these tokens, just for, for going forward, are ridiculously valuable. So, so we stole an idea from uh, Daniel Grislak from, from Atlassian. Um, with his AWS tokens. And I'm not sure if you've seen or heard about the AWS tokens, but they, they're probably one of my favorite things right now. So, so essentially, the short version is you come to our site or go to Daniel, and, and we'll give you a set of AWS API keys. And when you come to us, you, you then say, you're putting this on Ryan's laptop. And, and so we give you these good API keys. We remember that it's given to Ryan's laptop. And the whole point being, you leave it on your machine, and the day that you get owned, some attacker is going to see these AWS keys and think he hit pay dirt, right? Because potentially, you've just given him access to your entire AWS infrastructure. So he has to use it, right? If he's an attacker worth his salt, there's no way for him to not use it. And we know that they're searching for AWS keys. Attackers are part of their... It's, it's, it's part of most people's automatic hoovering up, right? And the moment they use that key, you get a message telling you somebody just tried to use the keys that you left on Ryan's machine. Now, what's amazingly cool for me for this is, like, firstly, we give it away completely free, right? But, but if you run a medium-sized organization, even a tiny org, like, literally, you've got the best awareness of has my CEO been breached, by, by someone serious that you ever gonna get. Because if it's a serious attacker, he's gonna touch this key. And if he touches this key, you're gonna reliably get told that he did. And there's no way for the attacker to not do it. Like he just has to. So so yeah, we think there's a lot of coolness in this high fidelity, low overhead alerting that can be done. And and it it ties exactly back to what we wanted when we started Things, right? Which was are there ways to hack the system to to almost uh, turn the tables on attackers? Like like where are the critical points where where clever hack uh, gives you the leverage? And and yeah, so far we've been uh, pretty glad because our customers seem to like it. Um, we've got a bunch of nice customers that that talk about it and and have spread the word. So no, right now we're in a pretty happy place. 
Uh, I have the obvious question is how do you avoid uh, someone pinpointing that that's a canary? Uh, uh, just right. some sort of uh, uh, mechanism in place to... Because I, I imagine attackers are aware that canaries exist and right. might be building... Uh, uh, ways to, to fight it or detect it. Correct. Ways to detect it. That's something I shouldn't touch. Yeah. So there's, there's two answers to this uh, for the most part. Well, three. Uh, the first one is we spent a lot of time in in our pen testing days doing exactly this, right? Like like I've got a nasal from like 2002 that would detect your Windows service patch based on the length of your 404 messages. So so like if if people want to play that game, like totally, we down to play that game all the way. But but something that works very strongly for us is. The fact that a canary can detect when someone's trying to detect it. So so way down to figuring out that it's being nmapped or figuring out that someone's talking to me unusually and I should talk about this. So if the old question was, well, now you're going to start an arms race, part of my answer is an arms race is better than where you currently are, where you're just getting bombed. So So get into the game. And, and the second one is that you start to detect people as they're detecting you. But the third one is, it's almost an uncomfortable thing to say. Um, I think as defenders, we spend a lot of time, people spend a lot of time questioning defenses that can be defeated in the lab that are not defeated in practice. And and I'll tell you two stupid examples for this. The The one is, when Snowden was going from Windows Share to um, SharePoint Share, he wasn't first checking if the Windows Share he was talking to was real or not. Like he'd see a mappable drive, he'd map to it and go get stuff. Right, but that's not a when, fair example, though. Um, in this well, case, you're talking about really well-resourced adversaries. Uh, sure. In, in so, some cases, at the, this what, what they call the APT level. And they're sure. heavily invested in making sure they're not triggering alarms or, or touching the right things. And you have to imagine that they're right. uh, building canary spotting into their, whatever sure. their attack so, infrastructure is. So the, totally with you. So so the canary spotting, uh, like I say, you'll try to fight that as you, uh, as you discover it or as you think of ways that you can spot it. And and for the most part, we try really hard to make sure we're not trivially spottable. Like I say, down to faking out the TCP IP uh, stack, um, a canary will do that. But one of the things to, to be careful of is the over-expectation for how APT groups even operate. And, and one of the simple takeaways that we have from that is we've caught red teams around the planet at this point. And every and, and I'm not talking about Mickey Mouse red teams. You're talking about like some of the best names in the business. And when these guys get caught, sometimes on day one of the assessment, often they'll end up saying something like, you know, we thought there was something suspect about that box. But it doesn't matter. Because again, what's what's super interesting is the old argument that said that attackers can fail multiple times and defenders can only fail once, has already turned around. Your attackers now fail once, and they tip their hand that they're in your network. And and if you take some of these super APT examples that we've got historically, even from, from crowds like the NSA, when they were bouncing around from router to router inside Belgicom, it just needs one hit to go from a connected router that's now talking to a connected canary for someone to go, hold on, what just happened? Why did why did somebody just log into a router at two a.m. that shouldn't have been there? Right, I get and, that, that. You're you're absolutely raising the cost for attackers and 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 and, and helping to disrupt. Just right. just two things. Your your assumption is they're already in though, and let's right. talk about that a little bit because. Uh, right. And you've done a lot of black hat talks. You've been involved in offensive security researchers for many years. What? 10, 15, right. 20 years. Um, we've seen, we've seen, let's let's just focus on the Windows platform. We've seen the Windows platform move from the XP days through Vista, through where we are today with multiple roadblocks, DEP, NX, uh, ESLR, right. all these sandboxing roadblocks in there. It now takes four or five vulnerabilities chained together to get a clean exploit. 
right uh, at the same time you can't you can't open a, a, a security news website or even cnn and mainstream media and see another new breach where is this disconnect right. between you know how bad things are and it ties back to this discussion that we always right. have to assume you're owned and, and right and and, and, and work on this deception to try to pinpoint attackers why right. are we I, seeing so many big breaches. massive bonage when uh, <laughs> when when it's, things are much harder and harder to 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 explore yeah it's it's a super good question and and like any good question i think there's multiple answers for it um i think uh one of the problems we have in infosec is that we blur the lines between very different fields uh, or sub disciplines so so i think parts of application security are certainly getting better like and and i think that was a slow boat to turn around which like you say started with xpsp2 and microsoft pushing out writing secure code and and the open source guys are going to uh, complain because openbsd was doing it right for for a long time before that but but what i mean is there was this turning point in the early 2000s where uh, trustworthy computing memo a whole bunch of let's turn this appsec ship around and huge amounts of resources were poured into it and that stuff's genuinely getting better but what's interesting is that the safety of enterprises and networks are almost entirely disconnected from zero days so so in in my previous company at a where we did lots and lots of uh, network pen testing so breaking into companies we've broken into like the planet like hundreds and hundreds of companies and and across all of that time you've never ever needed uh, a packaged zero day like like you'd use end day uh, a fair number of times but but zero day was almost completely uh, not necessary and and that's because it's almost a completely different uh, problem space and part of the problem is that the industry heavily heavily over indexed on zero day so so in the early days black hat was about zero day and all the rock stars were the guys creating zero day and even defenders would go to these conferences and think zero day and talk zero day and maybe they'll do a two day course on how to write their own zero day that they'd forget uh, by the time the uh, heat of the strip had worn off but those were not the problems that the enterprise networks were facing and and the problems that the enterprise networks are facing uh, still exist and and some of them are like for a while really smart people have started saying were unsolvable um you've got some guys like google's uh beyond corp uh, that that paint some hope for it and and almost on a complete tangent i've been giving uh, a talk since late last year or, or snippets of a talk with an idea that keeps building that i think the hope for enterprise networks is um security engineers who actually build their own defenses um and and i think like more than anything else that i've seen in a really really long time i think uh defenders who are actually engineering stuff gives us our best shot at at defending companies going forward uh, you talk about this disconnect between the value of zero days uh to use as an attacker and let's let's use the, the penetration testing security assessment examples you don't you don't need zero days in in most cases to break into an organization it's configuration errors missing patches for for old stuff it's phishing right. it's some combination of social engineering or, or or scraping linkedin for things and then using custom tools to you know build out map, mapping your whole attack path um, right and and you, you make a great point because i'm talking to a lot of cisos for this podcast and they say the same thing it's like it's 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 important to pay attention to the sexy od stuff the meltdown spectre and all this right really high end things that are super dangerous but at the end of the day when i'm assigning resources to defending i'm defending and blocking and tackling and all the uh, i don't want to call it basic stuff because it's a lot of hard work But, totally but it's not throwing dollars at blocking zero day here or zero day there and it comes back to this philosophical argument of how much how much risk are you 
comfortable assuming that okay someone will get in some sales guy somewhere will click on a spreadsheet or click on an attachment or get lured right. to a watering hole there they're always going to be a mistake they're going to get in and you're you're betting you're betting that this you know having having canaries being part of the kill chain to right uh, raise the bar and raise the cost for attackers is where it's at and I, but i'm but i'm curious uh, a question for you as uh, as from the business side, do you view this as a standalone product slash solution, or do you view Thingston and what you're building as just a component within a larger product? Right. Because you talk about security engineers building their own things, which is a gargantuan task. And <laughs> right. So, so and why I recreate think... the wheel? Like, there's a, a lot of this already exists. It, it, it'll cost. It'll call for spending, but right. So, so, in, so uh, two, two different questions. In, in terms of where we fit into the grand scheme of things, um, we try hard almost to uh, keep to the pristine uh, Unix philosophy. So like you do one thing well and you do it in a way that you can fit into someone's pipeline so, so that you do your component really well and then they can feed you to their seam if they want to or they can feed you to, to some other alerting if they want to. And... So I suspect that there could be some uh, product roll-up. One of the problems that I think, and, and this is uh, at a more meta level, I, I think one of the problems that security products have had for a really long time is that products have had to be complex to justify people spending on them or to justify VCs investing in them. And, and so you've had these really smart, really big products that have multiple PhDs and hundreds of engineers working on them. And they'd work in your company if you change everything about how you do your your work and change it around this product. And nobody does. So they half implement these products. And then when the product inevitably fails, the reason is, well, you didn't fully implement it. And so I think there's a there's a new push and there's certainly an increased awareness that uh, products that do a simple thing really well, do what they say on the tin, are actually worth uh, using in your org because, uh, yeah, simple and stupid and works isn't that stupid. Right. Um, in, in terms of uh, re, remaking the wheel with your, with your engineers for security engineering, um, part of the reason canaries do well is because one of the challenges we've had in defense is that your attackers know the whole battlefield and defenders don't, um, in the sense that attackers are able to figure out what you're running, they're able to scour Google or scour the internet, they, they're able to figure out a lot about you, and you don't know about them till they uh, till they've owned you. And Canaries changed this because it adds something unexpected, but by the same token, having security engineers building custom stuff in your environment, you get the same uh, benefit, which is uh, your your non-standardness ends up working for you. And and of course, build versus buy is an old IT conundrum, and, and I'm not trying to reverse all of that. But uh, I did a talk recently where I highlight a list of like five or six companies where you're starting to see meaningful security strides being made. And the interesting thing to spot is that at almost all of these companies, you've got security engineering teams who are building uh, custom components that uh, help with detection, with response, and with hardening. So you look at Slack or Square or Uber, um, and, and you're starting to see that stuff, and you're starting to see that stuff pay off uh, in spades, I think. I know I'm taking the conversation into multiple places, but I'm just fascinated sure. by, by building a company in, in this environment. Did you take VC funding at all? No, we didn't. Is that um, a deliberate decision? Yeah, so it was it was super deliberate. Walk, and, walk me uh, through your thinking, creating this <laughs> with this big picture dream and sure. you know versus I needing the funding and you know, a lot of it is, you know, I, I did a podcast with William Lynn from um from Right. Uh, 
uh, Trident Cybersecurity, yeah. yeah, Trident Ventures VC focused on security, and he was giving me the the full lowdown of how VCs view, you know, friends and family versus seed versus right. first round, and and what what the thinking goes into from from an entrepreneur standpoint and a VC standpoint of the when to take this funding. Right. Walk me through your own thinking and your own experience, and and why certain decisions were made, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, no worries. So, so it's uh, super interesting, and it's one of those things that I'm gonna like. I've given a lot of thought to, but uh, I suspect only history will uh, will tell someday about whether it uh, it was actually the right path or not. Um, so initially, I didn't take VC funding because I didn't want to be forced down uh, any product choices until I was really convinced that the product was the right one. And that's a legit and, fear for, for, for startup entrepreneurs that they get pushed uh, in directions by VCs? Yeah, so I suspect it is. I suspect there's a fair amount of, even if it's not uh, overt pressure, there's there's a fair amount of pressure to hit certain milestones. And, at certain and, times, right. Uh, at, uh, you're right. And, and I think that that stuff sometimes pushes ideas before they fully baked. And uh, there's Silicon Valley is big on uh, iterate, 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 uh, put something out, fail fast. And if you watch, like like Reed Hoffman uh, will often say that if you're not embarrassed by your first product or the first iteration of your product, then you waited too long to launch. And uh, uh, that's generally true for, for Silicon Valley companies. But I suspect in the security space, if you tried to build a product like that, you'd burn your credibility pretty quickly. Like, like I think in security, your minimum viable product needs to clear at least a certain bar. Um, and in truth, one of the things that I was fortunate about was um, we sold uh, my previous company. So we sold SensePost in about 2007. Um, so I had a fair bit of money. Um, so it's not if you uh, buy an island money. But it was enough money to say, uh, I don't need to uh, take VC funding for a little bit. Like, I can try to figure this out. Right. You could bootstrap it. Exactly. A lot of guys are not in that position, though. A lot of entrepreneurs right. with great ideas are not in that position. What are right. what, what, what did you consider in the early days? Uh, you know, you, you just mentioned, like, taking the product in directions where it's not really ready for. But what are some of the risks entrepreneur run when right. they, you know, when they're not in that position? Yeah, so so I, I think the risks are, are fairly self-explanatory, right? So so what happens is when when you're an entrepreneur trying to build a product, one of the the way the system works is, and and it's going to sound uh, horrible, but but essentially there's there's guys with money and and good intentions, but they're pushing for a big exit, right? Nobody VCs because they want to build the best product, like that's incidental. What they want is a great exit. And, and from very early on, uh, while I'm happy with a great exit someday, what I wanted was a few other things. Like, like I wanted to build a really good company, for example. Uh, I wanted to build a product that we genuinely love. And, and so those things are not exactly tied with, uh, with, with VC long-term goals. Um, in terms of young entrepreneurs, though, I, I can tell you, I think, especially in security, we don't easily have to go the VC route early on. So, so what we were doing, even though uh, I had some money, we didn't burn through that money. The avenue that we chose was we'd find a customer with uh, what we thought was a reasonable problem. And, and I said we, we took a few cracks at it. So, so for example, we, went, uh, we figured out with one customer that it's a massive global network and their outlook was being read by people from different countries all the time. So literally they had exec sitting in the home country, but actually his mail was being written read by two different countries simultaneously. And and so try one was we built a little product that ingested OA logs and then just spotted anomalies and said, listen, Bob always uses these three user agents. Suddenly he's using a brand new agent. Someone go check this out. Right. Or Bob's currently reading his mail from two countries at the same time. Someone go check this out. Um, and uh, the way we, we aimed that stuff initially was we'd go to a company with a likely problem and ask them to pay us to build it for them with the thinking that if we built it, we'd then sell that to someone else. And lots of companies have lots of problems to solve. 
And and I think for for entrepreneurs uh, or people who are considering security products in their orgs, it's a reasonable way to go. Also, so so you see recently the the guys from uh, Facebook and the guys from Airbnb are all putting out open source products like OS Query and things like that, and and it gives you a kind of a path that says, well, let me build this useful thing in my org um, with a license that I can then leave the company and build as its own product someday. So so I think there's there's a bunch of ways. Uh, one of the things that, that I'm often surprised by is uh, how us hackers end up taking parts of the system as absolute when when it's all just a system waiting to be hacked, right? Like like funding is a system waiting to be hacked and marketing is a system waiting to be hacked and, and good management is uh, is just a series of hacks. Did you find that uh, you're based in South Africa? Did you find that being geographically far, far away from the Silicon Valley rat race was a help or a hindrance at all? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I, I think for the most part, it's been a help for us. So, so we don't get caught up in, in some of the silliness. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think we you always have the the feeling that that like almost a feeling of FOMO and and I know historically one of the things I when when we were sense post in the early days and and South we'd African see our company as well right South African company and and we had a pretty good name like like we were doing uh, good work around the world we published a few in a few books with with like lots of the international players and and you'd see the our international counterparts all getting snapped up in acquisitions and we didn't. And at the same time, you looked at core security who were sitting down in South America. Yeah, Argentina. And, and, exactly. And you kind of have the same thought, right? Like like a core security that was purely American would have been uh, snapped up earlier. So, so I yeah, think but they did have a presence in the U.S. though. Sure. But you think core security and immediately you think South America. And, and so I think that stuff does play a part if... If you're looking for big exits, I think if you're looking to build a company that endures, it's less uh, it's less of a thing. Uh, like uh, probably more to the point, we don't bump into many customers who would say, "You South African, we're not going to deal with you." And and we've had to do some stuff, so we've incorporated outside, and we've also got a Swiss account and stuff like that. But but fundamentally, um, being a South African company, I, I suspect over the years we've managed to build up a fair amount of trust. And at this point, like we've got good customers who vouch for us, and so that thing almost seems to snowball. What does the hacking theme in South Af- the hacking scene in South Africa look like? Is is it very active? Do you guys have a security conference? Do you is it yeah. does it geographically lend itself to a lot of networking? Like say in New York. It's a it's a super good question. So so early on there were pockets of of guys doing good hackery and and I mean like in the late nineties, um, and at that point it was interesting because the guys who were doing stuff were kind of removed from from the rest of the world. So we had small pockets doing interesting stuff here, and South Africa at that time also had a global isolation in a sense. So. So, right, so you're dealing with apartheid all the way it, through to the mid '90s. Yeah, exactly right. And and apartheid has the the uh, one of the I was going to say benefits, but that's just stupid. Um, <laughs> one of the, Don't get yourself what, in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Twitter what, is waiting for you. <laughs> well, what happens when a country is in forced isolation is that they have to become self-sufficient. So, for example, South Africa was able to build. A, a competitor for the Apache helicopter, and and we had a, a fairly self-reliant arms ecosystem, that that in truth has has quite kind of dwindled uh, post liberation, because South Africa was no longer fighting with all of our neighbors, and and so we so had a bunch of innovate. Yeah, exactly. It's and, a great and there were some smart I, engineers. I, it's a great point you brought up core security. I actually visited Buenos Aires, uh, visited core security several cool. years ago. And I was talking to Beto and Ivan and some of the guys at uh, at core about 
Why is there such a strong, active hacking culture here in, in Buenos Aires? It's just a country way down south in South America, very unique in that they're very active on the hacking scene. Right. And their simple answer was, we grew up incredibly poor. We right. had to learn to steal windows. We had to learn to crack software. It was just a part of being a high school kid to be able to get anything done on the computer. You had to hack it. Exactly. That's where the culture comes from. Uh, you know, as you know, I worked for Kaspersky Lab for many years, and the, and the Russians will tell you the same thing. It's just uh, right. you are forced into hacking or cracking, so to speak. So, exactly right. And and uh, I think, interestingly enough, I think we lost that post liberation. So 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 the we got the internet, and for the most part, we largely ended up uh, with our with the new kids being consumers of the internet less than hackers of the internet. And and it's something that uh, a few guys, so Marco Slaviero, who's who's with me at Thingst, and Rolof Temming, who was... Rolof, um, a legend. <laughs> yeah, so, so Rolof and I were together at SensePost. And so when I was leaving SensePost, the three of us uh, decided to start a South African hacking conference uh, called ZACon. Um, which we ran for a few years. Was it still and, around? Um, no. So we kind of sunsetted it when uh, we stopped being, I, I think, the right people for it. Like, certainly, I think I stopped being the right person for it. And, uh, yeah, but but the whole original point for ZACon was to encourage kids to hack stuff um, because I think it's increasingly harder for kids to get into it. Like, like when when... I first started watching Black Hat talks, like you'd see uh, Mudge talking, or, or one of the early talks that, that I liked was watching Doug Song and Thomas Lepatic and Horizon beat up Firewall 1. And, and the stuff they did was awesome, and you looked at it and went, yeah, we can, we can test that, like we can verify that. And, and even following along with Smashing the Stack, was it, it was witchcraft when you first read it, and two readings in and uh, a, a debugger, and you could figure out what was going on. And a kid coming in today, like with all of the protections that you were talking about earlier, with compiler protections, with platform security, it's just really hard for them to get to the point where they see enough joy from the hacking to overcome the pain that it takes. And, and I'm really worried that increasingly people don't cross over because they don't get the joy um, early enough. Yeah, you think this, do you think this contributes to this uh, massive skill shortage that we have in the industry where folks are not as energized or as excited about sexy things like you were when it was much easier? Yeah, I, I, I think it plays a part for sure. Like, like it, I think more worrying than the, than the skills shortage that, that people focus on is that that increasingly we have less people who have an overview of stuff, as stupid as it sounds. Like, uh, uh, it probably needs some clarifying. Like, like I've spoken to uh, web app security guys who are really good and, and have a good name for themselves. And I tell them, uh, listen, we can test this. Uh, throw up a quick MySQL server and do this. And it turns out the guys have never admined a MySQL box. Or you say, like, look, this is easy. Like, like set up SendMail and do this. And the guys never run SendMail. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, uh, so there's a case for specialization. And, and as the industry moves on, there's got to be some form of specialization. Yeah, but institutional think, memory as well. It's like a lot of this stuff sure. has been done before. Uh, and I'm noticing it a lot. I'm, I'm focused a lot on the absence of institutional memory and security right. journalism and reporting. And it's something that's right kind of the top of my mind. And I imagine uh, uh, security departments today with hotshot university students coming out and uh, just the absence of, of institutional memory in organizations right. is really hurting as well, where a lot Ex- of this stuff is done. It can be... Exactly right. And and for, for en- in the enterprise security space, I suspect that's going to hurt much more than in some of the other places. Like, like you can learn good coding habits and you can, you can learn AppSec stuff, but, but can you learn uh, everything about all these protocols that people have kind of picked up along the way 
So to make a good call on whether that's actually uh, like something stupid, like like I've seen people push out uh, pen test reports on spoofing because they found a send mail running on an AI Xbox, but not truly understand what that meant or why it actually wasn't a problem that some internal AI Xbox could spoof mail. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, well, I, I think common. that's a harder problem. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you've spent so much time in the pen testing trenches. Uh, I, I, I want to put you on the spot. What? What are sure. there? Are there like a top five? Forget about the forget about the big uh, zero days like we talked about. Are there like a top five list of things every CISO or security director should uh, assign more resources to? Like, sure. what should companies be implementing in their organization at the very base level to? get a decent level of maturity that's a great question i look i think i think at the outset i think segmentation on an internal network is like like right now it's going through a phase because of the people talking about beyond security and perimeterless networks people are about to throw the baby out with the bathwater and and not think that segmentation matters but but if you are pen tester on a network and it's flat First, you're a pen tester on a network, and you've got to pass through a choke point that potentially alerts people. Like, like there's no choice between the two. So, so I still like segmented networks where you can uh, segment off things with with different trust levels. Um, and without making it a, a pitch for us, I think uh, detection and containment, and and it's it's one of those things that's become like often screamed about and super trite. But, but detection on internals, like like people go through these massive, like I think seams are now entering the trough of disillusionment on the, on the hype cycle where for a while everyone thought they were going to solve all the problems. But, but I think there's a lot to be said for detecting badness in places that matter. So, so one of the stupid things that I often uh, talk about is we've done dozens and dozens and dozens of pen tests where we've gotten to domain admin and three weeks later when we write the report the user who we created in domain admin is still there because they still haven't figured out that they've got a new domain admin in domain admins and if you think about that that's a ridiculous problem to have like like that's solvable with 20 seconds of powershell like just pull the domain admins group every day and tell you the day that the number changes and, and sure, it'll false positive the day you've added a new domain admin. And you're going to check and find out that, yes, it's Bob. And move on with your day. But I'm talking about dozens, hundreds of orgs, probably into the thousands, wouldn't know for years if a new user was added as domain admin on their network. And, and so I think there are, there are key areas like this where organizations need to start with well, well, what's the stuff that we consider our crown jewels? And then try to figure out, well, how do we protect against it? Um, and a few years ago, I gave a talk called uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. But one of the things that I think still are huge on enterprise networks that we haven't yet figured out is there's a really huge disconnect between what different parts of the org think really matter and what infosec teams think really matter. And and uh, I'm willing to bet that if most boardrooms knew how their email worked or knew that the help desk person could reset the backup user's password and using that password read everyone's email as it sat on the exchange server, I think boards would absolutely flip out but I think they don't know that they don't know that. Come and on, so, we, tell, we, 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 we can't even get congressmen to ask the CEO of Facebook <laughs> proper questions. You're expecting yeah. a member of the board to know about send mail? Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> the, the problem is they don't know that they don't know. And right now they think, well, we've got a 50-person security team, so we must be sorted for stupid things. But this is a really stupid thing, and nobody is solving it. And, and, and just like that, there's, there's dozens and dozens of problems in the enterprise space that are not being talked about at Black Hat, but are really your problem. 
and and so you find yeah some because folks. they never get accepted to black hat talks there's a lot of really solid I've been watching a lot of serious uh, engineering and policy talks that are not as sexy. We go back to the original, right. you know, if it's not all day, it's not fun. It doesn't Journalists fly. don't write about the, the yeah. important things. So, uh, so so, I think Black Hat's got a whole separate problem. Right? Like, like I've helped Black Hat with their CFPs for a few years. And at this point, it's insane. Like, like you're talking about thousand submissions even if you've got 20 of the smartest CFP reviewers in the world, you're not going to be able no to do that justice. That properly, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's a, a separate problem, but, but in truth, I also don't think that the offense first defense conference thing was, was what it was for exactly the same reason that everybody thought. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you an unusual take on it. Uh, which uh, again, I I don't know uh, how true it is, but it's it's certainly one of my guesses. Is one of the reasons that talks go that way is because attackers don't really have a way to monetize, or didn't until recently have a way to monetize their clever attacks. So so if I'm a defender and I come up with a new way to protect your org from X, I try to monetize it, and if I'm trying to monetize it. I'm not going to speak about it and give away all my stuff at Black Hat. Oh, it's it's fairly rare. Um, so we've actually open sourced lots of our stuff and talked about lots of our stuff. But but there's a path for a defender who has a good idea to go try to build a company, and then he's incentivized to not talk about his defense. An attacker who finds a new way to exploit uh, heap overflows, what he does is he talks about it in the hope that he then gets consulting business or gets a good gig. And well, that's been true until recently. And now uh, big payouts uh, will will cloud some of that. But but yeah, I, I think there is the... the yeah, that's offenses. an interesting thought, yeah. Where, where the defender is not incentivized to go public with. To talk uh, about uh, his stuff. And, and yeah, so, so I think that's one of it. I, I do think for sure the, the industry has, has fetishized and, and lionized attackers for, for a long time. But but I'm a fan of offensive research. Like like I think offensive research is necessary and and pushes stuff forward. So so I don't uh, I don't automatically hit at that uh, for for why we're not seeing good defense. And and look, having said this, uh, again I'm starting to see this turn. Like uh, Ryan Huber over at Slack has done some great talks on enterprise logging and and how they do uh, defense that scales. Um, the the guys at Square, um, Nathan and Diogo Monica, have done a great talk on exfiltration resistant infrastructure, like how to make sure your attackers are forced to stay on on the enterprise. Uh, John Flynn, when he was over at Facebook, gave a great talk on how they implemented Facebook's two factor authentication solution, and and I love that talk. Like I've quoted it now in in a bunch of different talks. Because John goes through iteratively saying, so we did this, and at this point, it's still too slow. Uh, at this point, like we've got so many devs authing every day, the solution's still not good enough. We can do better. And he iterates and iterates and iterates till he gets this uh, solution where it's now faster to two-factor auth than it is to not two-factor auth. And so now you've got all these people doing the right thing not because they want to be secure, but because they want to do the quick thing. And and I think those things are super important for where security needs to go now, uh, in, including with security products. Like, like I, think, I think security products, like security people, um, have got some bad habits. And, and one of our bad habits is uh, a kind of a hubris that says, we deserve a seat at the table. Because we do, because we security. And nobody gets a seat at the table just because. Like, like if marketing sucks, they stop getting invited. If, if anyone stops being useful, they stop getting invited. But security has a, we security and we deserve a seat at the table. And, and you see that bleed through in security products also. That, uh, there's some vendors, and, and I won't take names, but, but their security products have interfaces that were designed, like when we just came off mainframes, they they ugly and they kludgy, 
and they suck. And you know they suck because we immediately say that security and usability are natural enemies and they have trade-offs. But that's not necessarily true. It just needs the focus on making it not suck so that your product actually gets used instead of getting stored away in a cupboard gathering dust. And because uh, you automatically have a seat at the table, you're complacent and not incentivized to fix it. Or to, exactly uh, right. Address it and make it better. Exactly right. Um, what are you working on uh, from, a, from a research perspective? I know you, you're always very active. Uh, yeah. So, so we've got a few things bubbling. Um, for, for a little while, we, we're focusing, so I won't call it uh, just on tokens, but, but we're currently doing a fair amount of work on, on ways that, that, that you can detect uh, attacks on a network that, that don't have high costs to implement. And, and so currently we're we kind of aiming and shaping the org a lot at refining those, uh, that sort of thinking. And, and in part, it's because it, it filters into our products, uh, which benefit us. But, but also, once you start building tool chains for a certain type of thinking, um, essentially it becomes like a ball rolling down the hill, and, and you get to build on, on other stuff that you're doing. So, so currently, uh, most of our work is, is in that space. Uh, we're running out of time, but I, 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 there's one last question I want to get in before sure. I let you go. Is your thoughts on this the evolution of bug bounty programs? I remember when <laughs> bug bounties were iDefense. Uh, right. What is it, what was it called back then? God, I was uh, writing about this in 1995. Vulnerability sharing or vulnerability, yeah. Yeah, VSP or something. Yeah. Um, and it was very controversial. Every time I would right. write a story on on this. Uh, company buying exploits or buying vulnerabilities uh, related to Microsoft. Microsoft would always have a spokesperson decrying this stuff. And yeah, you know, it was, it was pretty controversial and we've moved past that where it's now such an accepted part. Like if you don't have a bug bounty program, it's a sign that you're somewhat immature maybe in some big organizations. Right. Uh, yeah. How have you viewed where we've come as it relates to bug bounty programs? And do you, do you see, bug bounties and this notion of crowdsourcing vulnerability research uh, as, a, as, a, as a crucial part for every organization to, to play around yeah. with. And, and, I'm, and I know you've thought of this because you've come up <laughs> with this pen testing business world. Do you yep. see overlaps with traditional pen testing? And give me a sense of where you see yeah. the pros and cons between. Yeah, it's, it's a super interesting question. And, and I, I think, look, it, like credit to, to the current crop of guys like the Hacker One, Bug Crowd, Seneca, the, the the three that popped to mind for, for kind of marketers. Yeah, they've they've kind of breathed new life into something that, like you say, was a bit of a toxic thought uh, a little while back. Like the stuff was always tainted a little bit um, by by a measure of ugliness. Um, in, in terms of of its use, look, I, I don't see it replacing pen testing companies entirely. In part because I think that market is just growing all the time. Like every day, the headline news is convincing new companies that they have to do something for security and do something usually translates to get a pen test. So so I think every day there's dozens more customers figuring out that they need a pen test, Googling, finding customer, finding pen testers and, and having it done. So I don't think those guys are going away anytime soon. Yeah, um, budgets are getting bigger, and there's a bit, there, there's also a big push. Pen test has this point in time weakness. There's also a lot, yeah. of, a lot of big companies, uh, uh, you know, getting into this continuous pen testing model where you yeah. do it on a, a quarterly basis, a monthly basis. Try to automate more of it. Uh, of course, yeah, they they always have to have the manual component, but I, and then there's some places, there's some companies that can't go the bug bounty route. You just can't give up that level of access to quote unquote right. strangers. So. Yeah, so so I've got a whole separate rant that we'll need a whole different call on. Come uh, back in on terms the podcast. I'm testing. enjoying this. You got to come back one day and let's rant and some other. Yeah, no. So so pen testing. I think I think if if you pen testing an org repeatedly uh, that many times and and still getting enough results to add value that there's something else broken in the chain, like like I think pen tests should be very clear that that you get in once. And they break off a whole bunch of chains so that they either spot you the next time or lock you out the next time. And I think there's only a handful of times that that you can do that 
before saying that they they're doing something wrong. But but in terms of bug bounties, I, I think it's uh, I think people who dismiss them outright are making a mistake. But I think in part it's because it's tapping into something else. I think there's been a huge market for Vuln scanners that hasn't paid off handsomely for a long while. Like like web app scanners largely just have different degrees of sucking. And and I think the bug bounty market eats into some of that. Because instead of having a university student with a web app scanner, you've now got a hundred guys in a place where it's economically viable for them to earn money this way, uh, trying, uh, maybe even running the same scanner, but then adding their eyes to try to uh, manually verify the problem. So, so I think what's interesting is you found a way to tap into a part of the market that's economically incentivized to uh, do what humans do better than computers. And, and so I think that that part is interesting uh, I think it'll be interesting to see those people graduate from uh, lower-end bugs to higher-end bugs and then see whether they're able to translate that into better-paying gigs. And and I think the bug bounty programs would do well to try to graduate those people because uh, you're effectively growing security teams in the way that most security companies have been doing. Like you'd have juniors, you'd have them run the scanners, you'd watch the results with them. And, and as they saw more and more, they learned more and more what to do. Um, if I was a company uh, running a bug bounty, for the most part, it enters, uh, at some point you get into the question that says, why wouldn't you? Like if, uh, because most of the objections to running it are going to be matched by, well, attackers can do that tomorrow anyway. So, so like if you worried about people banging on your door, they're banging on your door right now. Um, and whether you've given some people uh, a bug bounty that they can aim at or not doesn't significantly change that. Um, I think the question that says they're going to generate lots of noise, which you have to triage, is true. And I think the bug bounty providers try to handle some of that. And orgs are figuring out how to deal with that, which is you write off your first N months with getting to a level of normal. And after that, you, you have a better way to go. So, so I don't think, uh, one of the big questions I have is whether the bug bounty companies themselves are economically viable. Because, I, so I don't know the internals of many of them, but certainly the rumblings that I've heard has not been that, that these things are massive cash machines. They've all and, taken VC money too, so in order to... Right, so, so I suspect lots of them have taken money and are currently... Um, either making razor-thin margins or losing money um, to try to get this thing going. And I'm not sure at which point they get to uh, hit the button to actually start making money. So so maybe uh, that whole thing dies just because uh, it's not a viable model on its own. But but I know there's some smart people working on it, so, so maybe that'll have a run. Uh, I guess the short answer is I think the market's big enough to sustain them both and I think eventually most companies will have it uh, almost because it becomes a, hey, report this to us through valid route one instead of putting our name uh, on full disclosure or across the Twitters. Right. And it's, 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 it's interesting to see a lot, of, a lot of the big, very mature companies are using their bug bounty programs largely as a recruiting tool. Uh, right. I saw yeah. uh, Mikhail Zalowski. I'm, I'm butchering yep. the pronunciation of his name and I apologize, but... He actually mentioned it like that was one of the big pluses of. Uh, That's a clever uh, idea, actually. Yeah, it totally makes sense, right? If if you've got yeah, the, the best finders will work guys. their way to the top, and you already have a relationship with them. Exactly right. It's it's a totally reasonable way to go. Harun, thank you very much. Am I seeing you at RSA? I yes, we actually will be at RSA, which is uh, difficult to come out of my mouth. I was just going to say, how do you guys deal with the travel that you have to do? I've never <laughs> been to South Africa, and I'll tell you why. It's too freaking far away. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, no, the, the travel to the States is, is painful. And it, it used to be worse for Black Hat because we used to fly over and then do sometimes six days of training and then talk at Black Hat and talk at DEF CON. So, so after a few years, like people would say, like, oh, you're so lucky you're going to Black Hat. And, and <laughs> mostly we'd scowl at them. 
Um, oh, I can't yeah, tell you, you how many years I've been trying my best to escape Black Hat and RSC. I just <laughs> can't because I have to work. But yeah, no. So it's it's actually uh, Canary's first uh, RSA. So so we've never done a, a showroom floor like that. But last year I popped in. Uh, incidentally, I was down to meet a customer and then walked the showroom floor. And so this year we we're gonna give it a try just to see. Like it's a nice way to meet all our customers. In, in one week or lots of them in one week but no not looking forward to the flight looking forward to uh, meeting some friends and customers thank you very much Harun come back again we we have so much more I, I have a, a list of things we haven't touched yet we're already <laughs> an hour you, in so you say when it's been fun thank you very much thanks Ryan